passage out of the Bible, Nehemiah 13, verses 23 to 31. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible to that passage. I'm going to read a disclaimer at the beginning of it. I do not normally do this. This is the first time I've ever done this. But the stuff in this passage, um, a lot of people are going to naturally, and I think in some sense rightly, find preliminarily offensive or threatening. And so here's my—I wrote it down so I wouldn't say too much. Here's my disclaimer. I'm going to read a passage about how Nehemiah cleansed the people of Israel from, quote, everything foreign. If you are an immigrant, or for any reason you feel like the majority of people wouldn't consider you a native, don't let this passage make you feel nervous. I am not going to preach against you, and the Bible is not preaching against you. I will explain later that foreign in this passage means someone who rejects the Lord and worships foreign gods in ways that are detestable and in rivalry to our loyalty and our companionship with the Lord. So when you hear the language of this passage, don't let it make you feel unwanted or attacked. God certainly attacks us in his word, but not for things we cannot change. He confronts us for things that we believe and things that we do and how we're forming our character into who we are. All right, Nehemiah 13, 23 to 31. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons, or yourselves. That's a quote from the book of Deuteronomy. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. This is a guy who is a foreigner who has been explicitly trying to destroy the people of Judah. And this guy married into his family for purposes of power. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. So I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each to his work, and I provided the wood for the offerings at the appointed times and for the fr first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for good. Okay. What I want to do this morning is I'm going to take one truth that Scripture teaches all the way through that you'll probably find offensive and upsetting unless you already have come to be developed in Christ to believe it. And I want to get at an even maybe deeper and more difficult truth um, that should be as offensive, um, but we don't normally think in those terms, right? When I, um, a while ago, if you guys can turn that screen on right there, it would be great. Um, a while back, I was at a, a young person retreat, like high school, college age, and there was a young man who had kind of grown up in the church, been part of the Christian faith, kind of fell away, and then sort of rededicated his life pretty dramatically back. And he was talking to me. He said, Nick, I have this, um, I have a girlfriend. She's not a believer. We've been having these conversations about Jesus, and some of them go pretty well, some of them don't go pretty well. I really care about her. She's like my best friend, and can you just help me, like, figure out, like, how to— talk more fruitfully about Jesus with her. So, like, I was helping him strategize with this, right? And at some point, I was just like, can I just stop for a second? Yeah. Do you—do you know that Scripture teaches that if you're a believer and you choose to get married, that you can only marry somebody who belongs to the Lord? That Scripture explicitly teaches that? And he just kind of looked at me, dumbfounded. 
This kid was like in his late teens, early 20s. He had no idea, right? And sometimes in our attempt to be like non-offensive and allow people to like kind of come in and learn like the best things about God before they learn some of the most difficult things about God. See, when we say best in that meaning, what we mean is easiest things about God. But some of the best things about God are the hardest things about God. And if we don't teach them or talk about them, then people don't hear them and they don't know them. And then they certainly can't even be offended by them because they don't even know. But scripture teaches from one end all the way to the other that if you belong to the Lord and you choose to marry, you must choose to marry someone who belongs to the Lord. Um, one of the ways, um, so here's maybe the most explicit verse in the New Testament, because this isn't just an Old Testament thing. This is a New Testament thing. It's true in the time of Jesus, in the church that we exist in now. In 1 Corinthians, it was, it's talking about um, women in particular relative to certain things in marriage, and it says this in verse 39. A woman is bound to her husband as long as she lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. Do you see that? There's tons of freedom. You can marry a twit or a wanton or a fool, so long as they belong to the Lord. And you realize that once you marry them, you are bound to them as long as you live, given the two caveats of Scripture I don't have time to get into now, right? Now, one of the things that this really should get at for us ultimately is this. Why does God think that he can meddle in our gender, our sexuality, our lifelong companionship, and all that? And the answer is because relating to God is a comprehensive relationship, right? We, we, sometimes we think that faith is like, so I have my faith, so I believe in Jesus to forgive me for my sins. I believe in Jesus to um, take me to heaven when I die, so I experience the resurrection. Like, I, I believe in Jesus for these things that, that religion is particularly about. But, but like, then I have these other things, right? And, these, and they all coexist kind of well. And the answer is, that's not really how it works. Right? It's not like going to a restaurant that serves things a la carte, where you look at all these like nice offerings, and you pick the things that you want, and you like build your own meal. That's, that's not how it works. Um, when you become a believer, Scripture says that to believe in Jesus is to become a disciple. Right? The, the believers in Jesus in Scripture are literally called the disciples, or the saints. You're like, well, saints isn't any better. Saint, a saint means holy or sanctified one, one, one who has been fully set apart for the purposes of God. That's even more directly saying you're a disciple, right? Now, we can have a whole conversation about, like, how serious about discipleship do you have to be to be really saved? And the answer is, nobody knows the answer to that question. What God counts as authentic faith saves, no matter what sins are operative in people's lives. Because we all live in some mixture of our faith in God and our trust in Him, and our own infirmities, weaknesses, ignorances, and stupidities, all kind of mashed up together as we're living it out, hopefully the best that we can, with the Spirit working us towards Christ, in the mind of Christ, and in the image of Christ, as we walk through life by faith and obedience. Right? That's not the question. The issue with this saying is, if you believe in Jesus, you are by definition his disciple. Does that make sense? You're his disciple. In fact, in the book of Acts, um, remember, we are not the ones who came up with the name Christian for Christians. Do you, do you understand this? The word Christian comes from Acts 13, where the, the believers in Antioch were called Christians because nobody could make any sense of them, because it wasn't just a Jewish sect there. Everywhere else, Christians were, they were a Jewish sect. In Antioch, it was the first place that they were truly a multi-ethnic and multicultural church, in a place that was incredibly ethnically divided. And so what do you call these people, right? So they just—they all talked about the Christ all the time, so they just called them Christians. That's it, right? What the apostles called themselves were followers of the way. That's what they said. 
followers of the way. Like there's a way that you walk in belief, trust, and faith in Jesus. It's a way, and we follow that way. We're followers of the way, right? So like the Mandalorian was not the first person to say, this is the way. Do you understand? Like he, they took that from the Apostle Paul, right? But it's in the public domain, so it's fine, you know? And so like you have to understand that when you come to Jesus, you aren't a la carte picking through by your, with your faith, the things you want to believe in, and then leaving aside the things that you don't. You come to Jesus as a whole person. He receives you as a whole person. He relates to you as a whole person, and you belong to him as a whole person. It is a comprehensive relationship we call discipleship. Does that make sense? And if you understand that, you could see, you begin to see how these things start to dovetail with one another. Let's see if I can make this move. I can't make a move. Okay. So, um, there's one of the things to realize when we're disciples is when you're a disciple, the master, right? A discipleship relationship is I'm a student and I'm a student of a master. That master has comprehensive rights to teach me and I am in submission to that teaching. Now, when he tells me something I, I immediately disagree with or don't like, the question is what do I do or what happens, right? Now, the, the, the mentality of a disciple is that when my teacher tells me something I inherently disagree with, I'm wrong. And my goal now is to investigate the meaning and purpose of this command until I understand the lesson that it will teach me. Does that make sense? <coughs> so, and here's the problem. In many of these cases, I can't just do that intellectually, trying to sort out what it means. In most of these cases, I have to actually do what the master says in order to experience what you learn that nobody can really teach you until you do it. So, for example, in Matthew, right, 21, that we read this morning, Jesus told the disciples to just go to a place. They would find a donkey. They were to take it, even though it wasn't theirs. If somebody said this, you say this back. Like, just—and he's like, just do what I tell you and go get the donkey. Now, they don't even know why he needs a donkey. They don't know that there's this messianic passage from hundreds of years previous that he's going to fulfill entering Jerusalem by the son of David coming, riding on a donkey in humility, instead of as a conquering hero, destroying the lives of others and taking them into his captivity. He comes in humility, loving to serve all because he's going to lay down his life on the cross and rise from the dead. And that is all depicted in the Old Testament in the book of Zechariah, and he's going to embody it riding on this donkey. He didn't want to explain all that to them, and he shouldn't have to. He's like, go get the donkey, and then you'll figure out what happens afterwards. And in a lot of these things, that's just the way it works. You're going to figure out why it's so important that you only marry a believer if you're a believer, like throughout the rest of your life. You know? And you're not going to figure it all out right now, even if you try to investigate it. The question is, do you trust the master to teach you in this comprehensive relationship of discipleship? And are you willing to face the fact that he's telling you something you might not like? Right? So, three, I want to look at three things here relatively quickly. One is, um, in order to pursue God in this comprehensive relationship of obedient faith, you have to, one, um, reject willful misunderstanding. The first thing that's going to happen when you hear a command that you don't like is your wounds and your wants are going to create this new voice where it's going to take over your rationality and come up with all these arguments about why you shouldn't do the thing that God is telling you to do. And if you don't know that's going to happen, and if you don't stop that hijacking of your rationality, you're just going to—all you're going to do is you're going to spend all your creativity, all your wisdom, all your thought, and all your energy proving in your own mind why God is wrong and why you're better than Him, okay? Once you—yeah, I know, it's very sad. And then once you recognize that, and once you stop it, 
and you put it to death, like it says in Galatians, right? Then the second thing is, you have to realize, okay, built into this command is the mind of Christ. God is thinking a certain kind of thought related to this. There's something he wants to teach me. There's a way I can be like him and think like him and act like him and know like him and participate in the image of God. I need to learn what that is. I'm missing something. That's why I don't like this command, right? And then thirdly, it's designed to pull you out of the abstract ideological thinking about how you think things ought to be to what it actually really means to be a human being in the real world. Because there are some commands that if you think about them just abstractly, like the way you think the world ought to be, they don't make any sense. But when you realize what you actually are as a human being, how you develop and how you grow and how you change and how you're influenced, then a lot of the commands of God that abstractly you would think don't make any sense because they shouldn't be that way, are actually exactly what you need as the particular kind of creature that you are to be taken by him comprehensively to the place where he wants to take you in there and where you really would want to go. Does that make sense? Okay, let's go through these. Are you excited? It's going to be so fun. The sermon's already half over, don't worry. Okay, so one, rejecting willful misunderstanding. That's not true, by the way. The sermon is not half over. Okay, rejecting willful misunderstanding. Um, planning for the revolt of our wounds and wants by infiltrating our, irra- our irrationality. Okay, so what the Bible calls the flesh is this part of us that does not want to submit to God. That area of the flesh is both our, like, hurts and wounds and stuff we don't even really know about ourselves or, or have trouble feeling about ourselves. All these, like, unreconstructed places of our deeper emotional being, right, that need to come under the discipleship of Jesus. They need to come up to the surface. They need to be reunited with our rationality so we can become a whole person. Under the curse, there's so many ways we get hurt and harmed and pushed down, and we feel insecure, and that people aren't going to love us, or we're not going to be included, or like all these things, and they're all swirling, and most of us just want to deny that they're even there, but they're there, and you can't get rid of them because they're part of your humanity. They're not sin in and of themselves. And then we have our wants or our desires. The New Testament calls these epithumia. Thumia is desire. Epi is way too much, okay? Uh, Desires in that context in Scripture are our desires that are like out of whack. They're messed up. They're not ordered the way God intentionally created them originally, but they're like going nuts, right? So a lot of young men, like the way you experience your sexual desires. Like, you're supposed to have sexual desires. Women are fantastic. You are going to want to bond with one of them. But like, they're like, of it. That's what epithumia means, right? Okay, so we've got that, and we've got our hurts and our wounds. And then these, these like, are complicit with each other, right? Because they are allies to get us to not do that thing God says. Because if we do that thing God says, it's going to hurt these wounds all the more, or they're going to have to be dragged to the surface to, for healing, and they do not want that. And our epithumias, our out-of-whack desires, want to be satisfied and pleased. So they don't want the command of God either. And so they are part of our emotional self. And it goes, hey, rationality, let's come up with an argument for why God is stupid, right? Have you ever been, like, you've been working at home for a year, a lot of you, right? You know how you're, like, you're supposed to do your work, but, like, you have, like, in your mind, you're like, you know what? I need to do this work after I go get a coffee. Or, like, I know I need to do this, but, like, I feel like if I play a video game for, like, 20 minutes— I'll just be in a much better mental place to do this, right? Like, you know what I'm talking about? Or, yeah, I probably shouldn't yell at this person who I care about, who's like telling me what they think about how I'm behaving and living. But like, I feel like if I yell at them right now and tell them how I'm feeling, it'll be really constructive for our relationship. It'll help us get to the place where God wants us to be, you know? Because then they'll really understand me too, right? That's all bull. Understand? Like, it's, it's our—the uh, way we work, because there's no such thing as rational thinking without emotional thinking. Our mind is also wrapped up with itself, and our brain, our neurology is also wrapped up with itself. There's no such thing as thinking without feeling. 
Okay, be great if that could be the case, I guess. Maybe that's not even good. I expect if it was good, God would have made us that way, right? It's probably not good. The point is, is that if you don't realize that's what's happening, that when God tells you something your wounds and your wants don't want, it's going to try to hijack the whole system, what the Bible calls the flesh, right? And worldliness, that is the whole world around you that isn't submitted to God, is going to supply you with reasons. There's going to be tons of YouTube videos and TV channels and all kinds of stuff that makes not listening to God look really beautiful and awesome and like the way you ought to go if you're like an open-minded, good person who's liberated and not like repressed or something, right? And when that internal movement of the flesh meets the external creativity of denying God, (laughs) it creates this really effective mechanism by which we think we're being wise and smart and mature to make sure that we absolutely miss the truth that God wants us to know to shape us in the person that we can be. One version of—I think I skipped something. Did I? One version of this is— um, uh, Okay, I'm just keep moving here. Yeah. So, like, here's just like a graph of kind of how that happens, right? It starts with, like, your wounds, like your victimology, your inferiority, your shame, your guilt, your isolation, your anger, all this stuff that's like inside of you, right? And then all your epithumias, all your like out of whack desires. And those work together to create a rationalization. Pragmatism, like, look, it just has to be this way. I have to do something, right? Like, like take your average Christian woman who's like 20, right? There's not as many dudes in the church as there are girls, right? Right? You can, uh, you can flirt to convert, but that has liabilities too. Plus, um, not all the men in the church are actually desirable, because um, they're all like, they're like, well, I'm Christian, isn't that enough? And um, they're not dealing with all their crap, so they're not becoming like masculine men who are— anyway. And then, so then they're looking at some more desirable men outside the church, and they're trying to balance that with the less desirable men that are in the church, and what should I do, what should I do? And so what's happening in their hearts? They're like, I think I could date that guy. Like, why not? I mean, maybe he'll become a Christian, maybe like— but I have to do something. I can't just do nothing. It's not my fault there aren't more guys in the church. The guys should go evangelize some of their friends. Why aren't they doing that, right? Blah, 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 blah. Like, this is all, like, makes sense, right? It, it, like, it's not crazy. But what it, the way it's functioning is as a rationalization to not listen to the Lord and do what he says, right? Guys usually rationalize—that's women tend to— guys tend to rationalize why it's okay to have sex with their girlfriends, even though God explicitly says they can't. Like, like, just take any, like, younger guy with, like, 10,000% more testosterone in their system than they want, right? And, like, a pornographically saturated culture, and, like, women competing with each other for desirability, and, like, them just being like, well, it's probably okay. You know, I really love her. I just want to be closer. That's intimacy, right? Like, like, you, like, it's not crazy. That's what happens in your crazy minds. That's why you need friends and church and all these other things to be like, no! Warning. Uh, 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 uh. Sorry, I got a little carried with that. Okay, so then there's escapism, which is kind of like the thing I said about you're like trying to work at your computer. Like, well, I could do this other thing. And then you get inevitability. Like, you know, like it's not going to work out. Like God has me in a situation where I can't win. Failure is inevitable. So asking me to do this is immoral. Therefore, I don't have to listen, right? Which leads to— Moral superiority, we sometimes call that wokeness. Like, I know better than God, right? And God is like bigoted or stupid or wrong or immoral or whatever. Or moral independence, which is like the libertarian version of it, which is like, um, you know, God shouldn't be getting involved in these parts of my life. Like, I'm an independent moral agent. I should be able to make these choices myself, blah, 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 right? And if you're really creative, you can be both of these in the same day, rejecting God, okay? Now, the reason why that's important is like, 
you have to see this happening because it is, you have to stop it psychologically. You can't stop it philosophically because this is a rational thing that's happening in your mind and you can't say these arguments are wrong. You've got to realize where they're coming from and that they're coming from a place that just wants to justify yourself and you have to shut it down on that level. Otherwise, the arguments are just going to sound really plausible. And you don't realize you think they're plausible. Kind of like when you're mad, you're sh- so sure you're right. And you don't realize it's because there's chemicals in your system telling you you're right so that you can kill that person who's threatening you. You think rationally you're right, but you're not. And then later you'll be like, that was crazy. I can't I believe I believed that. You have to realize where the interest in thinking is. So for example, in this case, people could hear this like, um, w- Nehemiah's like, we got rid of all the foreign women, right? You're like, that's so bigoted. Like, can you be more xenophobic than that? That's so terrible. It's just awful, right? Okay, except here's the thing. Most people just don't know what the Bible teaches all the way through. So like, for example, one, some people would think, well, if that's true, if you're only allowed to marry a believer, are you saying that like everybody who's married to a Christian who's not a Christian is like a second-class wife or like not worth being married to or that like you can divorce them or like treat them or abandon them? And the answer is, of course not. The Bible explicitly says in 1 Corinthians 7, that if you're married to a non-Christian, you stay married to the non-Christian because the irrevocable covenant of marriage that you made with that person stands over against the other question of whether or not you should be married to a Christian, right? You've already made that decision, right? And it's possible that like you got married and then you became a Christian and you're married to a non-Christian. What do you do? You stay married. You love your spouse, right? Or you married somebody you thought was a Christian, and then they lost their faith, or it turned out that you were too immature to realize they weren't really a Christian. Now what do you do? You stay married to that person, and you love them. They're your spouse. You have committed yourself to them, right? This command is for those who are getting married, right? If you marry, you must marry someone who belongs to the Lord, right? Also, it doesn't mean that you can't marry somebody who's different. It's not, it's not anti-ethnic. It's not like, well, you can't marry somebody who ain't like you, you know? That's not what it's teaching. Right? It may sound like, because it says foreign women, but foreign in this context means not willing to submit to the God of Israel. Not willing to participate. So one commentator says it this way. Removal of foreigners should not be viewed as racial exclusivism. As always, foreigners could become part of Israel by conversion. Right? So one example of this is in Ezra. So Ezra and Nehemiah is kind of like one big book. And there's this place where they're going to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's this week, right? So the Feast of Unleavened Bread— culminates in Passover, right? Jesus enters Jerusalem on the donkey on the first Sunday of unleavened bread. He dies at the Passover, as the Passover lamb, and he rises from the dead, right? So it's literally this week. The Jews were celebrating this as their their greatest high holiday, and you could not celebrate this according to the Torah unless you had been added into the people of God and, been, and come in as a foreigner, you, have, you basically by faith, by conversion, belief. And it says this, it says that, so Israel, the Israelites who had returned from exile ate it together with all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors in order to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. And for seven days, they celebrated with joy the feast of unleavened bread. So Ezra explicitly says that in this time period, same time period as Nehemiah, that anybody who was a foreigner by race, birth, language, skin color— ethnicity, who wanted to seek the Lord and seek the God of Israel, and was willing to separate themselves from the provoking and rival practices—we'll talk a lot more about that when we get into Ezekiel—of the the Gentile nations around them that provoked and angered the Lord because they were incredibly unjust and violent. 
that by, by conversion, coming to the people of God, they were to be accepted. And even at this point in history, where we could have this, this accusation of xenophobia or whatever, that was happening and operating under the religious leadership of the priest Ezra. Right? Another example of this is, the, is Ruth, in the book of Ruth. So this is one of the one of two women in the, in the Bible who get their own book. Ruth was a Moabitess, which is literally one of the nations mentioned here that people were intermarrying in wrongly. Right? But um, Ruth had married a Israelite who had left Israel and gone into Moab and married her. She learned about the Lord through this family of this marriage. Then when her husband died, her mother-in-law was going back to Israel. And the other sister-in-law went back to Moab to be a Moabitess, right? And Ruth wouldn't leave. She said, no, where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And where you're buried, I'm going to be buried. That is, she converted. She, she sought to seek the God of Israel and to remove herself from the detestable practices of the people around her, right? She came to Israel with her mother-in-law. And she was protected under all the rights of an Israelite woman while she was in the gleaning process. And Boaz, who is put forward as this picturesque figure of the true Israelite, who followed the Lord, did everything justly, prayed and honored God, treated his workers properly, did everything, and fulfilled the right of Redeemer. Everything that a Jewish man was supposed to do, full of faith, of all the women he could have chosen to marry, he picks her as the perfect Jew. That is, not a Jew by race, but by faith. She was the perfect Israelite as a Moabitess, right? And that is celebrated in the Hebrew Bible. It is canonized she gets her own book. She's in the line of King David and in the line of the Messiah himself. If you take the Bible as a whole, what you recognize is that this is not a claim against like multi-ethnic marriages or something like that. It's a, it's a focus on the reality that the intimacy of shared belief is fundamental to the intimacy both with God and in marriage. And those either work together or as rivals to each other. And you can't get away from the natural human reality of that or the spiritual reality of it. Discipleship is comprehensive. Marriage is comprehensive. Either they work as multiplying blessings to each other, or they're crashing against each other as rivals. The deeper your intimacy becomes. Okay, let's keep moving. <clears throat> so what this means is, if you listen to this passage and you were like having the woke response, where you're like, this is kind of bigoted and like, right? Listen, here's the, cool, here's the cool thing. God is more woke than you, okay? Like literally 2,500 to 3,000 years ago, God was like, yeah, you can marry interracially. That's totally fine. Like you can marry, you can marry literally whoever you want, as long as she belongs to the Lord. That's it. That hasn't changed. And some woke people might be like, that's still, that's still discriminatory because you're saying they have to believe something. Well, listen, there was a survey done pretty recently of like all the like um, progressive people, like a, a big portion of progressive people, and they were asked, would you be interested in dating or marrying a Republican? And the vast majority said, absolutely not. I wouldn't even go on a date with one. Why? Because, well, one, they might be bigoted, or two, right, they, they want a profound interworking, multiplying intimacy in their marriage for what they believe, the internal belief that they have, that they hold to deeply as their understanding of the world, and they want to share that and be influenced with their spouse in the same direction, rather than being in rivalry and a loggerheads in what they hold most intimately. But if they're going to be consistent, then if God says the same thing about his believers, that wouldn't be unwoke. That would be more woke. 3,000 years ago, God was woker than we were 25 years ago, and maybe even are now. 
right? And when you look at the libertarian side of it, God only puts one stipulation on who you can marry. He could tell you exactly who to marry if you wanted to. Like, he could, like, by the Spirit, like, tell you, you're going to marry Sarah, you know? And, like, you'd have to do that if you were his comprehensive disciple. He doesn't do that. Like, when young people come to you, like, I think God told me that I'm going to marry this, you know, this girl, you know, Alice. I'm like, um, are you sure that's not your loins telling you that you're going to marry Alice? And you realize Alice has to agree to this and not from your internal experience. Like, you've got to convince her to marry you, like, as you. Right. Right, because God doesn't normally do that. What God wants you to do is for you to take responsibility for your own life. Because what happens when things stink when you marry Alice? You're going to blame God. You're going to be like, God, you told me to marry this woman. He knows that. That's why he didn't tell you to marry her, right? You decided to marry her, and now you found out she's a sinner, and now you got to figure out how to love her. And God will help you with that. You know, and her hopefully, especially if you married someone who belongs to the Lord, and you can at least start to get on the same page generally, so you can try to get on the same page personally. That make sense? All right, let's keep moving. Second point. Um, we want to—that was the longest point. Right, that's, ha- that's half the sermon at least, okay? Just because—and the reason is you've got to spend time on why we don't want to accept this. Once you realize that why we don't want to accept this is wrong, then accepting it really isn't that hard. Once we take off our armor, like, it's easy to get the bath. You know what I'm saying? So the second is learning the mind of Christ. That is, when Jesus tells us something that's a command or a teaching, and we're like, I don't like that, the question we have to say is, if we want the mind of Christ, if we want to be like him, if we want to know him, if we want to have a comprehensive and intimate relationship with Jesus, then we have to pursue, why did he tell us this? He has a good reason. He may have many good reasons. The whole structure of how he thinks about it could be completely different from ours. Because listen, we're really worldly. Even if we're believers, we're totally worldly and self-centered. And a lot of our thoughts have been driven by our wounds and our wants. And so we've got to pursue, like, why does he say this? And you've got to start with believing that he's right, and he has a lot of good reasons. And if you pursue them, you could find them. Does that make sense? Now, um, why is it so important? Just think about the logic of this, Okay. Faith produces intimacy with God. Through an irrevocable covenant, Jesus has died for your sins and risen for your justification. He has given his whole life to you so that you could be wholly his, so that you could be forgiven of your sins, that you could receive his righteousness through an intimate connection of your union with Christ. Most theologians when, that I know that, I, that think about this clearly in my opinion, who say, like, why can Jesus die for your sins? And why can you have Christ's righteousness? How does that work? How is that even moral? Like, how does—like, if I commit a murder, how can somebody else die for me? I committed the murder, right? And the way this is talked about theologically is this, is that it's because of the mystical, existential union spiritually between us and Christ. We are one. Only because we're one can he die for our sins, right? When we become one, his righteousness can be our righteousness, and our sin can be his. That he can be—he can die for our sins. We died in him. He died for us. Because we are one, it is our union with Christ and our spiritual intimacy with him that creates even the moral possibility for him to die and rise to save us. But in addition to that, he pours out his spirit in us to draw us to himself and to change us. Right? His—everything that he does, he does to have a deeper, more complete influence and intimacy and companionship with us in ways— that are more hidden than we would like, but are entirely complete and they're dynamic. God is our comprehensive, intimate, influencing companion. 
There's nothing deeper, if we're believers, than, the, than that relationship that he wishes to have with us. We are one with Christ, right? But also, as he created two complementary genders to come together in this irrevocable, lifelong covenant of marriage, he has done so in order that they would give themselves fully to each other and become one. So there's, there's only two places where God speaks of in, in some sense, a semi-absolute oneness, right? And so we are meant to become one with our spouse in mind, body, soul, in faith, in desire, right? Even to the point of creating, like the only, do you realize the only physiological thing humans do that require two humans is procreation? It's the only thing. Everything else we do physiologically, we don't need another human being for. That's the only thing we need another human being for. Do you understand? It's like, that we, when we become one with the other person, it actually produces generatively new offspring and new human beings and new life. Right? We become creators in the intimacy of that oneness. Does that make sense? Now, here's the thing. These two onenesses can either be complementary multipliers of each other, or they can be rivals provoking each other. And they have to be one or the other. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew 6 where he says, you can't have two masters or you'll love one or you'll hate the other. It's also true about lovers, it turns out. You can't have two lovers or in some way you will love one and despise the other. Right? All comprehensive relationships are influential, intimate, and comprehensive. They are companionship that is permanent based on an unbreakable covenant. Either these work together for us or they're constantly provoking each other. And once you realize the logic of that, that that's what's working in the mind of Christ, he wants us to have not only two incredible gifts, but he wants those two incredible gifts to work with each other and as multipliers of each other. Which is better than the two gifts by themselves. But if we don't choose to believe him and we choose to make them rivals of each other, man, it can get bad. Okay, the third thing is, is to learn from the nature of our humanity. We, especially educated people in America, are taught to think abstractly. One of the things that allows you to get better jobs is what, if you have the intelligence level where you can think abstractly. I don't know if you know this, but like 25% of the population in America cannot read directions, transform them abstractly in their mind to what the directions are saying, and then actually do them. They just, their mind doesn't work that way. They just, they can't do that. They're not, they're not like dumb, like they can't do anything, but they can't, they can't really do abstract things very well, right? But people who are, like, in the intelligent classes, the educated classes, we teach people to think abstractly. Because once you think a thought abstractly, then you can apply it in lots of different ways, and it allows you to be very, like, creative and improvisational and all kinds of things like that, and productive in many ways. The problem with it is that we get very disconnected from concrete realities. And we think things are possible that completely aren't. So, for example, um, I, I, I've talked to tons of—tons of people. I've talked to people who will say, Nick, I don't understand why God would make it this way, right? Like, I'm a Christian. I marry a non-Christian. What's the big deal? Like, they're not a Christian. I am a Christian. I'm going to stay a Christian. They may stay a non-Christian. They might become a Christian, right? We'll have kids. Both of us will live out our faith or our non-faith in front of our kids. Our kids are free to choose whatever they want, right? Like, and if I—if the gospel is true, then they'll choose Jesus. And, like, what's the big deal about that, right? And abstractly, nothing. The problem is that human beings aren't the kinds of creatures you assume they are in that abstract little notion of what's going to happen, right? People who are married to each other influence each other profoundly, 
right? You can't not influence each other, and you can't not want the intimacy that exists on the level of the deep convictions that are wrapped up in your faith. And so these things will come out because you're a human being, especially in terms of influence. One of the things that you have to realize is that one of the things human beings aren't very good at is realizing that some decisions are other decisions. We just don't know that yet. So let me give you an example of this from my life right now. I've been trying to more and more get up and be studying from 6 to 8 a.m. So like I'll study for an hour, and then I'll do something, and then I work out for like the last 30 minutes, right? And then I spend an hour from my family until 9. That means I have to get up at like 5.50, but I know from being 43 years old that I require eight hours of sleep. I hate that. I wish I could sleep like five hours and be like the sleepless elite or whatever, but I just—I'm not that human being. I just get sick. So I have to sleep eight hours, but I have to get up at 5.50, which means I've got to go to bed at like 10 o'clock sharp. What that also means then is that I have to start going to bed earlier than that, like at 9.45, right? And then that means that I can't start watching TV with my kids at 9.30. Do you understand? If my kid's like, hey, dad, let's watch one of the new, like, Falcon and blah, 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 and it's like 9.10, that doesn't work, right? Here's the thing that I have to realize to be a mature human being, to realize what it means to be human, embodied. The decision to watch TV at 9.30 is the decision to not be at my desk at 6 o'clock. The one is the other decision. Because they just kind of I'm a human being. And as, like, theoretically, you'd be like, well, I'll just wake up earlier. But I, I can't really do that for like five days in a row. And I won't. And then I just won't get out of bed. And then I'll make some excuse for it. And then I'll, right? And so one of the things we have to recognize is that we, you are a human being. And you have to like, there are things that Jesus says, you're like, I, I'm not going to believe that. I don't accept that. Because you're thinking ideologically, you're thinking abstractly, you're not really accepting that you are a human being. And the reason why he's telling you to do it this way, and he's saying that this is true and that you must do this and not do that, is because you are a human interacting with other humans as humans. And, the le- and the, as you allow your thinking to get like all like abstract and like, oh, it should be like this, you get disconnected from the concrete reality of what we really are. And then you think stuff's possible that just isn't possible. You think life works in a way it just doesn't work. You think things are going to be good that are not going to be good. And then we make really foolish decisions, and then we panic because of the results of those foolish decisions, and we make even worse decisions. And then we panic again, and we make it worse. And then we have to carry all the weight of that while we have to try to turn it around. And it's really hard. It's really hard. And so one of the things Jesus is trying to teach us is not just the mind of Christ, how he thinks as God, but he also is trying to help us figure out what it really means to be the image of God, image of God bearers incarnate as actual real human beings. We really know who we are. We really know what we are. And when we know that, then there's certain teachings that we're like, oh, that's really wise. That's really wise. That's what I needed, even though that's not what I would have picked right? Like most of us would not have picked marriage as the way human beings should be together. We're like, we should just be voluntary. Like, you know, you just like, you're with people as long as you want to be with them, and then you do what you want. Like, it's fine. Like, it'll be, it'll be fine. It will not be fine. Look around. It creates carnage because, because we're human beings, and it's not going to work for us, right? And there's lots of things like that. And so part of this whole thing is that we have to realize what is hijacking us. We have to realize what it means to try to seek the mind of Christ. We have to let God, through that, teach us what it means to be a human being, right? So let me just, let me end with this. Um, 
Oh, sorry. Let me, I, I do want to connect to this, because I want to connect it to the Bible. I don't want you to think I'm just saying this myself, and so these, these verses are helpful. Did you, like, do you, do you remember what, how Nehemiah argued this to the Israelites at that time? He said, listen, you guys, don't you remember Solomon? Like, Solomon was better than you, right? He was, he was wise. God appeared to him twice. He was in the line of David. He was a king by nature. And, like, he was—God gave him wisdom, right? He gave him success. He gave him all these things, and he—God loved him. Like, like some people believe, you know, like, you know, if God loves me, even if I do whatever I want, it's going to be okay, because God loves me. Well, God loved Solomon too, y'all. And he still made a wreck of it. That's not, that's not going to save you. You understand? And so he said, listen, Solomon was better than us. He had every advantage. He had the direct revelation from God. He had intelligence and power and money, and he had all the resources he needed. There was nothing that he was lacking for him to do what he should do. And yet, in his wisdom, his wants and his desires led him to realize that if he made treaties with foreign nations by marrying the prettiest of their princesses, that he could keep peace and increase his prosperity. But then those princesses came with their idols to Israel and built shrines, and, and then he became more progressive and more open-minded and more woke and like just more like interested in like other people's beliefs and more pluralistic. And then he started worshiping their idols. And then he turned his heart away from the Lord. There's a kind of closedness that is really awful, and it'll, and it'll shut you off from the life of the world. And there's a kind of openness that is like a city sewer rejecting nothing that will kill you and destroy your relationship with the world. And it ate him up most of his life, until at the very end he comes back and writes Ecclesiastes and tells us about how much foolishness he engaged in. The reason Nehemiah makes that argument is he wants to persuade these people that they're human beings. Yeah, of course you can just go marry this foreign woman. Yeah, you can marry this guy who's not a believer. And yeah, you can think in your mind how you think it ought to go, but that's not how it's gonna go. What was actually happening was that half of the kids couldn't even speak Hebrew. I mean, think about this for a second. The Israelites went into exile to Babylon for 70 years, for three generations among the Babylonians for the expressed purpose of destroying their culture, destroying their language, destroying their religion, destroying their cultural identity. They had made it through all of that time, 700 miles away, maintaining their religion, maintaining their spiritual identity, maintaining their integrity, ready to come home. They come home, they have a tiny bit of prosperity, and in 12 years, half their kids can't speak Hebrew. Think about that. I can't remember what country it was in Eastern Europe that, I think it was Bulgaria, where I think it was the ethnic Romanians were trying to destroy this, sub, this like subgroup's cultural identity, destroy their language, destroy their culture, destroy their dances, destroy their foods, destroy their families. And, um, and they couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. After like a whole, like five generations of communism, they still had their ethnic identity. They still had their language. They still knew who they were. And then the Iron Curtain fell, and MTV came. And they lost their cultural identity in one generation. Sometimes what people can't beat out of us, will prosperity, and we'll just give it away. You know? You gotta know what you are as a human being. You gotta know what we're prone to. You gotta know what we are when we're not possessed by, led by, and keeping in step with the Spirit submitting to the mind of Christ, trying to realize what it means to 
steer the vessel of being a human being. Let me just end with this. What God is trying to show in us is this is what Jesus the Christ did everything to display to us. Right? Jesus took every teaching that you could fight with God about, every single one, and he embodied them perfectly for us. I mean, think about this. I mean, have you ever thought about like what it was like to be Jesus, be fully human, and to not get married? Okay, I'm just gonna tell you as a spiritual leader who people follow not nearly as much as they follow Jesus, women throw themselves at you. Like, Jesus would not have had any trouble marrying 27 women, okay? Like, th- this was not an issue for him. He could have married, could have had a home, he could have had a family, he could have had peace, he could have done all that stuff. And on one level, he would have loved to indulge in those things as a human being. But he chose to be continent and single and celibate and yet teach forthrightly on sexual purity and clear it with clarity and to lay down his life in all the comforts of having a family and having a female companion, it's not good for a man to be alone. And he chose to be alone to do the work he was called to do. He laid all that down and burned that to ashes, right? He took every command of God all the way to laying his life literally down so as to display the love of God and the truth of God. Because remember, Jesus wasn't killed because he loved you. Jesus was killed because he told the truth to people who didn't want to hear it. He died for love, but he died by truth. And he did it, no matter what the cost, to display it, living, taking the teachings of God for our obedience and displaying them to us through lived obedience, showing us. The, the book of John particularly focuses on this, that he is an always obedient to the Father. Every action, he's like, I'm being obedient to the Father. Why? Why was he being obedient to the Father? Was it because he didn't want to do what the Father said? Is, is the cross cosmic child abuse that God the Father sent the Son unwillingly to the cross? Of course not. The triune mind of God shares all beliefs perfectly. The Father didn't send the Son with any more willingness to the cross than the Son himself went to the cross. That's why it's not cosmic child abuse, and that argument is silly. Jesus went to display his willing obedience to everything to the Father to you so you would see how good and beautiful it is to be the full disciple who wants the full mind of Christ who wants to embody it as perfectly in humanity as the image of God can be embodied in humanity for the good of the world, for the salvation of the world, in the blessing of God, and in the fullest spiritual intimacy one can have with a God who brings us comprehensively to himself in all things so that Second Peter can say that we can share in the divine nature and so escape the corruption of the world. And where feasible and possible— to receive the natural covenant of marriage the way he intended it, that these would be multipliers of each other in intimacy and love rather than detractors and rivals and provokers. Every command he gives you is out of wisdom, truth, devotion, and love. Every fear that you have, you will find to be unfounded in the end. And every wound and hurt that you suffered that feels like it would do anything to not be revealed so that it wouldn't be, have to face healing. And the pain of it, it is worth going through the pain of that healing and to come into the mind of Christ and to embody your humanity like Jesus did. It's, it's, it's a good thing. And it's not just this command about marrying a believer. It's every command that's part of comprehensive discipleship. When we come to believe in him, we become his comprehensive disciples. And if we reject 
that identity, we can never have any sustained renewal in our lives, personally or as a people. Father, we pray that you'd help us to embrace the beauty of being yours comprehensively in all things. That we would understand in it the promise of your influence, the promise of your intimacy with us, the promise of your love for us, the, prom- the promise of you, like it says in Romans 8, to be so deeply inside our hearts and our souls that even the groanings and pain that we can't even put into words, the Holy Spirit, you are in that place speaking the truth in prayer to yourself as the Father so as that we can actually express ourselves intimately intimately to you in ways that we don't even understand about ourselves. Help us to imagine and walk in and believe in an intimacy with you that is that deeply, that deep. And help us to desire that kind of understanding of intimacy in our romantic relationships a comprehensive one, one that is full and that we can pursue even under the curse. And we pray that in these things that you would make them multipliers to each other, to us. And I pray also, Father, that those of us who are in, um, who are single, who are divorced, who are in marriages where the other person is not a believer, that in that vocation that we find ourselves in, in that space, you would help us to Um, recognize that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That all you call us to do is to live beautifully in the thing we cannot change. If the thing is this thing we cannot change, that all we can do is live in it as beautifully as we can. You may change it, you may not change it. Help us to embrace it like Jesus did. And help us to live well in our intimacy with you. And in all of the sub-intimacies we can have in friendship and in brotherhood and sisterhood in the Christian faith, in all of these other ways that you bring relationship and influence and love into our lives. I pray that as we reflect now, as, this, as we play some music and as we think about this, help us to take like just at least one thing, Holy Spirit, that you want to work on us about and, and take it down deep to pray to you, to write it down, to think about it, to consider it deeply so that we won't forget immediately what you want to do in us. And then help us turn our hearts to you in worship, to love you and adore you and like just change our minds instead of willfully misunderstanding you to really giving ourselves to you and pursuing the lesson that's in every command. Pray in Jesus' name.